Hello and welcome to the year's last episode of South Asia Chat, a podcast series brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Nitya Subramanian, an editor at the Institute. 2021 has been an eventful year on many fronts, even as countries continue to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. The year began with President Joe Biden taking charge of the White House and later the Taliban gaining control of Afghanistan in August, both events pertinent to our conversation today. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Rahul Mukherjee, Professor and Head of Department of Political Science at the South Asia Institute in Heidelberg University. He is currently the executive director of the same institute and also a non-resident senior fellow at ISAS. We will be talking to him about the state of democracy in the world today in the light of the recently held democracy summit called by President Biden. This has raised several issues and discussions with Dr. Mukherjee himself having written a paper on the subject with reference to India, which is popularly known as the world's largest democracy. So without further ado, let me welcome Dr. Mukherjee. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure, uh, Nitya. So let me start by the latest event that happened in December. President Joe Biden held a democracy summit which saw the participation of over 70 countries. What are your thoughts on the summit and were there any key takeaways that stood out from your perspective? Well, uh, my view is that the democracy summit has to be viewed in the context of what has happened in America and also in the context of what America feels challenged by in the world. So let me just talk about what has happened in America. So what has happened in America is unprecedented. The period during which President Trump came to power and continued to rule was like an anathema for American democracy. Uh, I say this was an anathema because even political science departments and gurus of political science in America could not fathom how this could happen. These types of political phenomena happen when science ignores history and when historical processes are lost. And this is somewhat what has happened in, in both the journalistic field as well as in the political science field. The result of which some leading political scientists in America said was, well, if all of this comes true, then you know, whatever we've been writing about comes to naught. So you have to understand that there was a grave crisis in America. Now, the grave crisis in America also found support. So it might have found some support in, in, in Chinese interactions. We saw that Prime Minister Modi said, Abki bar Trump sarkar. <clears throat> so that is the context in which the new government came to power. And the new government came to power in a very, very... I would say respectable style, because uh, the challenge was great. The opposition needed enormous political organization. And it came together with President Biden, even though he was very old, by mobilizing people in such a way 
that even though more people voted for Mr. Trump, the fact of the matter is that the largest number of votes went to President Biden. So this, in some senses, you can say was a grave crisis that many Americans feel America itself averted, which is the crisis of democracy. Now, even while Americans were trying to avert this crisis, I think there was a feeling that democracy is challenged both inside and outside. So the idea of the democracy summit, as far as I know, is not such a new idea. It is actually quite an old idea. And it is in that respect that you have to understand. Now, there is also an external dimension of the democracy summit. The external dimension of the democracy summit is the challenge from China. The challenge from China is not just a, an economic challenge. It is also an ideological challenge. Now, you may disagree with the Chinese way, but the Chinese way is very different. And, and because it is very different, it might actually work very nicely with dictators all over the world. So the question then is that there is a Chinese challenge to democracy, but the problem is that there is also a Chinese challenge to liberal economics as America views it. So there is this twin challenge, which is both ideological as well as economic. And I think this is the reason why the democracy su uh, summit came about. And the democracy summit, in my view, did not completely fulfill some of, let's say, the more ideological, political, and democracy-oriented goals that it may have set itself for. And in my view, it may have therefore sort of moved a little bit in the direction of geopolitical containment. Well, your points really um, are, are very important and they lead me to the next question, which is um, the criticism that the summit has faced. I think Time Magazine had a very um, strong piece on this uh, summit where the writer started off by saying that, and I quote, that Narendra Modi, Rodrigo Duterte, and Jair Bolsonaro walk into a democracy summit, but this isn't a joke. So some have, as you also said, called it a geopolitical ploy, while others have questioned America's own credibility, especially in the light of its withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover. Do you re really think that democracy is under siege? And how do you view these criticisms? You know, I, I, I think these criticisms are very valid. You know, before the Demo democracy summit, let's say if the democracy summit had very politely uh, requested Prime Minister Modi to explain how he can explain the abrogation of Article 370 or how he can explain the behavior of the parliament when the free farm laws were passed, or how he can explain the, the imprisonment of people under the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. Uh, that would have been one way for the summit to go. I mean, you certainly invite a leader. And I, I, don't, I, I do think that India is still a democracy. It has not given up. Uh, otherwise, the three farm laws would not have been repealed. 
there was, of course, a lot of political power behind repealing the farm laws, and we didn't get a Tiananmen Square, as we have seen in China. So democracy is there, democracy is challenged, and there could have been a discussion on what kind of a country are you becoming? And therefore, in a kind of subtle way, uh, trying to make the argument with leaders who are turning what now political scientists call competitive authoritarian, I have written a little bit on that, to address some of these issues. Address these issues not in a manner that America will impose democracy, but to address these issues in a manner that would suggest, who are you? Where are you? What kind of a club are you in? So you, you can criticize China for being non-democratic, but if you put all the leaders behind bars and then using the group majority in the parliament, convert a special state, not even into a normal state, but into a union territory, what is it that you are talking about? So the question is that the summit could really literally have been a manner in which America could, in a fairly democratic way, nudge the processes of democracy. And I'm not an expert on American politics, but I think there is there are problems within American democracy. And therefore, I think what happened was the geopolitical became very important. So in the context of South Asia, I can say that Sri Lanka was not invited, Bangladesh was not invited. Now, just as a scholar, not as a policymaker, why would Sri Lanka not be invited? Uh, I am certainly one of those who believes that the Rajapaksa government is not a very democratic government. But why wouldn't you invite them? This is an old democracy. This is a democracy that became a democracy before it became independent. The only reason why you would not invite them is because they are just getting too close to China. Right? Then take the case of Bangladesh. Now, I am also one of those who believe that Bangladesh's democracy is deeply fractured at this point in time. Uh, but why wouldn't you invite Bangladesh? You, would, you can certainly invite Bangladesh. So, so, so you, can, you can see that Sri Lanka and Bangladesh are not invited. And when Sri Lanka and Bangladesh are not invited, Pakistan is. How do you justify that? I'm not saying don't invite Pakistan. I would, you know, I, I would have a more generous interpretation of democracy. I would say invite Pakistan, invite Sri Lanka, invite Bangladesh. They get a discussion on why you guys are not getting it right. And that will help you engage with China. But the reason why you probably don't invite Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and invite Pakistan instead is because Pakistan is once again like a frontline state. And then you let Prime Minister Modi make the kind of speech where it appears that democracy is much more intrinsic to India than has ever been anywhere since ancient times. And that India will teach the world. It will become like during the Corona times, it was a Vishwa Guru. It will become once again another Vishwa Guru. So then you let the leader of the world's largest democracy, perpetrating, in my view, some of the excesses to that democracy, 
where not just me, even members of the constitutional conduct group, which has the most distinguished civil servants, judges, and army generals, are routinely signing off documents saying that India's democracy has been defiled. And you let him come and speak. So I, I'm giving you a South Asian context because that is what I know the best, uh, much more than the Southeast Asian context. But that would work for the Southeast Asian context too, I'm sure. Uh, that you have then basically just invited people you need to invite and to engage with in the name of democracy. And that, in my view, is not democratic promotion. So in my, you know, I know that Singapore was not invited and many other countries were not invited. So the point is that, you know, I would not argue that the idea itself was bad or the idea itself came from a bad source. Because quintessentially, I believe that uh, people should have rights. And I think that was certainly something that India believed in. And of course, uh, still, there are large parts of the population that believe in. So we don't have elections in India like we have in Bangladesh, where opposition parties don't stand to contest. But the manner in which this agenda was taken forward actually became not such a support for the democratic idea, but much more a support for, you know, what do you need to do in geopolitics to produce a group of countries that can contain China? And that, in my view, is a bit of a tragedy. Yes, um, you did rightly mention that Singapore was not invited, but, um, and also thank you for this pers geopolitical perspective. But let's talk specifically about India and the state of democracy in India. You wrote, you wrote about it recently. And uh, what was very interesting and pertinent was the fact that you highlighted that democracy was India's strength or has been India's strength despite its poverty. Uh, could you please share some of your observations and what have been the factors that led to this deterioration of democracy in India? Well, um, uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, today, if you ask many Indians who certainly believe in the democratic idea, and many of them are in an earlier generation, they will tell you that they just cannot believe what's happening, nor do they have the resources to deal with what is happening. If you ask them two, three years ago, the same people would have said, yes, this is happening, but India has a strong democratic tradition and you know we will overcome. But with the 2019 victory and with things like what, are ha what is happening in the parliament where root majorities are being used, even without proper discussion to pass laws that are not well known, where entire special states are being converted into union territories, where very, very respectable people, people who can win the Nobel Prize for peace, more than some of the peace laureates are in prison, where, you know, if you speak against the government, you have an enforcement directorate sort of going behind you. I, mean, I can give you the example of Amnesty, which is an Indian, Indian NGO where we had, we had just criticized the government on Kashmir as well as on the riots in Delhi. And they could not be brought in under the foreign currency rules. So there was the enforcement directorate that was let loose. So in, in all of this, 
the fact of the matter is that the government is pursuing a policy which is threefold. The first is that if you can use the Hindu-Muslim divide to make the Muslims look like a useless majority, which will scare the hell out of every party, because they also have to compete with the right-wing Hindu nationalist BJP, there you can take bold steps like abrogation of Article 370. But where, let's say, the political opposition is a little bit more powerful. So, for example, when it came to the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register for Citizens, they found that in Assam, a lot of the people who got left out of the register were actually Hindus. And the reason why they got left out was because as the Assamese people are more scared of the Bengalis from West Bengal than they are from the Muslims coming from Bangladesh. Or in the most classic case, uh, in the case of the farm laws, where I think uh, we have seen the most unprecedented social movement, perhaps in the history of post-colonial India and perhaps in, the, in, in recent history, we find that the prime minister on the eve of a substantial election literally turned around completely and said that, look, uh, we will repeal the farm laws. We believe in the farm laws, but we will repeal them. Now, why will you repeal the farm laws? You will repeal the farm laws because elections still matter. Uttar Pradesh is going for elections. And a lot of people think that a victory in Uttar Pradesh will have an impact on the 2024 national elections. So when the political cost is very high, then you can backtrack. When the political cost is not so high, then you can completely smash a minority community. But all of this is ultimately driven by a Hindu nationalist agenda, which is also working with very few capitalist business houses. So for example, in the case of the farm laws, one of the things that made the farmers very unhappy was the fact that uh, Gautam Adani, in consortium with the Food Corporation of India, had already started making these go-downs, thinking that they would procure all of these food grains. Now, let's say the government had moved in the direction of a minimum assured price to the market, where corporates take responsibility, or government takes responsibility, then I don't think this protest would have lasted. It was just withered away. But look at the connection between one big Gujarati entrepreneur close to the prime minister who has bankrolled the prime minister's rise in Gujarat, many people say, as being singled out as a beneficiary. And, you know, this is true because you just have to go to the Bloomberg and you will find that Mr. Gautam Adani was Nowhere. He was a four to five billion dollar combined in, 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 in 2014. Uh, today, he is about probably 80 billion. So divide 80 by four. That's the growth that he has had. And a few weeks ago, he became 88 billion. Only two billion less than Mr. Uh, Mukesh Ambani. And this is not just Agriculture. The agriculture story was the most frightening story. It had a huge opposition attached to it. 
but we are doing some work on telecommunication where we find a very similar story for mr ambani's uh, reliance jio to which the prime minister was very closely attached where from from a company that could never find market leadership position it is now 37% of the market so so there is also a connection between hindu nationalism and chronic capitalism however the whole environment is such that the media is fairly quiet and passive many people say that the media so if you look at the vdem report you will find that there's been a huge decline in, in media freedom and the result of that is that the state can team role itself and opposition finds it very difficult to succeed however i would also say that the resilience of india's democracy is not dead because you saw recently that uh, mrs mamta banerji in west bengal uh, she took on the prime minister and the home minister who uh, who actually orchestrated a longish election in order to win it and he made she made these two very big bjp leaders look small because they had put in all the financial and the human resources into west bengal thinking that this would be almost like a revolutionary turning point in indian history but the result was that mrs mamta banerji had enough seats in the bengal legislature so that even with a little bit of money they could not get legislators to turn around in fact just the opposite happened many of the old trinamool congress people who had joined the bjp actually came back to trinamool congress so there is resilience uh the farmers movement as you have seen is also a case of resilience because in this particular case it is now going to be very very interesting to see what do these farmers do after they go back to western up after they go back to punjab and after they go back to haryana when so there are going to be elections in all of these places including in uttarakhand so this is going to be very very interesting to see how the opposition forces are going to come together but i think the real crisis for india's democracy is not so much that we have a right wing hindu nationalist party in power i think it has more to do with the fact that there is no national party like the democratic party of uh the united states of america to bring more voters to come and vote for a different idea than what the bjp is promoting so this is where i would say as much as uh, the leadership which is in power but also the historic role of the indian national congress has to be revived and rather than fighting with smaller parties i think the indian national congress needs to look more like a party that is able to bring together parties be sympathetic to them because now the indian national congress although it's a national party and there is no parallel to it uh, is no longer the same congress party so they are not going to win everywhere but if they win 50 seats or 60 seats they may still emerge as the largest party uh in the opposition so this time, last time i think they won 51 or 52 so the congress could not even provide a leader of the opposition now if they win let's say 51 or 60 seats uh they should not rather try to show how great they are but humbly 
pose themselves in the altar of Indian democracy to bring together forces in the same way as, let's say, Jayaprakash Narayan did at the time of the emergency to fight another kind of authoritarian that was perpetrated by another prime minister. So I think right now the forces of opposition have to come together. The, the people are there. They are voting for opposition leaders. They are voting for their, they are fighting for their rights. So the, so the social characteristics and the milieu of democratic practice is alive. Unfortunately, political parties are unable to play, play their historic role in the opposition. Well, that brings me to the last question, which is about India's neighbors. And uh, as you rightly said at the beginning that Pakistan chose not to attend, but of course it claimed that it is staying away from the summit because it does not want to be part of any political grouping while also showing solidarity to China. And we've also heard China in the recent times talk about it being a democracy that works. How do you view these positions or the positions of these two countries in the current geopolitical context of South Asia? Well, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that there has been some dehyphenation of American policy. Uh, if you look at Pakistan, you will find that there's a very strong correlation between the military coming to power and it becoming a frontline state. So when Pakistan becomes a frontline state, the Americans pour in a lot of money and the military comes to power. So this happened after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. This happened after 9-11. And of course, in the times of General Ayub, Pakistan was a darling of the Cold War. So it had signed into all of these alliances. So you have to get a little bit into the domestic politics of Pakistan to understand. However, when this money is no longer there to govern the country, then you find yourself in a situation where somehow the military withdraws and civilian political leadership comes. But what is interesting about Pakistan is the military is fairly in top all the time. And this military is now in business. I mean, just read Aisha Siddiqui's work, Military Incorporated, to see that it is even in business. And that's probably one of the reasons why Pakistan cannot become a very good exporter of textiles. Because, you know, military has no business to be in business, right? So the power of the military which was highlighted in the classic writings of Hamza Alavi in the 70s, you know, the bureaucratic military oligarchy, still remains very, very powerful. But the context has changed. The Cold War has ended. Uh, India has risen. And obviously, there is much greater affinity between India's internal strength to stand as well as to uh, stand up to China as well as its ability to play a role in the global economic order. Now, if you have these two things together, then you find that ever since the nuclear test, the relationship between India and the US has improved considerably. Now, the fallout of that has been that Pakistan is no longer getting those kinds of privileges that it got from the Americans, and it has nowhere else to go. So where does it go? It goes to China. And 
I am told that the way in which the Chinese deal with Pakistan and countries like that is very different from the way in which the IMF or the World Bank do. But I'm not an expert in that area. And China too finds itself as a rising power whose might is slowly and very quickly coming to uh, challenge literally the American might. And it needs allies. So there is, and then these two countries are neighboring countries. They have a neighbor uh, called India, which to different extents is threatening. So this is like a very nice case for the two countries coming together. Now, if you ask me, the story on the Indian side is also not without its problems. You have India, you have Nepal, you have Pakistan, you have Bangladesh, you have Sri Lanka. Almost with every country, you have a problem. Right? So why do you have a problem with every country? Why is it that every country is uh, somewhat, including Bhutan, I'm told these days, uh, trying to use China as a counterweight to India. Uh, and that's a question that Indian policymakers have to answer. Is it because Indians are not very good at making ports quickly or producing the infrastructure quickly? Or is it because the manner in which India behaves in the neighborhood appears to be very high-handed, very imperial, very vice-regal? Now, these are questions that India has to answer. And very recently, we had invited Ambassador Sham Saran for a talk where he argues that India should not even try to compete with China on infrastructure. What India should do is to see that it opens up its trade and transit facilities. Because this is a region. And there is only one country that can make this region work like a region. And that is India. So rather than make the Bangladeshis travel all across the oceans to reach Pakistan or and if you improve the trade and transit facility just by opening these things up, you can make it much, much easier for South Asian countries. And Indians should be willing to buy garments from Bangladesh. Why not? Even then, the trade will be much more in favor of India. So I, my view is that India should give up this policy of saying that we will not talk to Pakistan. Of course, if, the, if Pakistan does not respond there is a problem. If Pakistan continues to send terrorists, there is a problem. But why will India not respond? India must respond and India must show. And I have a feeling that in, if India does, certainly uh, the outcomes are likely to be better than what they are today. And all of these things will not work if the right-wing Hindu nationalist exclusive idea of India is promoted. So no matter how good your relations become with Bangladesh, please do not for a moment think that Bangladesh as a Muslim-majority country would like to see its Muslims being linked. So I think you have to work with the exclusivist idea, make India look more inclusive, and you must also make India look much more engaged symmetrically with its neighbors through economic cooperation. And I think there will be a much better response from even countries like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Bhutan and Nepal. And Pakistan will be a test. It will not be easy. But at least India must play its historic role uh, to see that Pakistan has the opportunity 
yes, if the military does not relent, if the political class cannot respond, that is a bad luck. But not because of the found of, uh, because of India's wanting to provide those opportunities. Thank you so much, Dr. Mukherjee, for this insightful conversation. Um, and thank you for joining us today. We'd like to wish you and all our listeners a very happy new year. Thank you. And here's also wishing you and all my friends and colleagues at the Institute of South Asian Studies, with which I have had a very old association, Merry Christmas, and a very, very happy 2022. Let us hope that 22 will look more normal than 21. Thank you very much. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. Also follow us on our social media handles, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you. Thank you.